All right, we're back. I missed everybody, actually. I feel like I was doing so many of these back-to-back. Uh, the Manifestor Mindset took a little bit of a break. It's been a few days, but um, I'm back. And I'm back here with a special guest. A, a few things before I get into that. Um, this new functionality on StreamYard, which I love, which now enables me to see any of the comments on the right-hand side. So uh, if you have questions as we talk for a bit, love to throw those up on the screen, um, whereas before I couldn't see it before. So if you see me keeping one eye to the right, it's because I'm trying to pay attention and, and grab those. So I'm so excited today to have uh, uh, my partner. Um, so to be clear, I'm completely biased. I have no not a shred of objectivity about the guests that we're about to have on. I'm completely conflicted, selfishly motivated uh, because I love coffee very much. I live for the smell of coffee beans and I love a great you know flat white. And so those things... Uh, came together with uh, RSE investing in Bluestone Lane uh, a couple of years ago now, which we'll get into. But I have with me the founder of Bluestone Lane, Nick, Nick Stone. He is from Melbourne, not Sydney. You don't confuse that because the two cities get very resentful of that. So from, from Melbourne. And Nick has a pretty incredible story. He was an, uh, an athlete, which I'll let him get into, uh, Australian rules football, um, and eventually became a banker and uh, made the transition to becoming the improbable uh, executive of a nationwide coffee cafe, incredible food. And, and it's just extraordinary to watch Nick iterate throughout the course of his life. Clearly, he's also a model and a cyborg because no one could look this perfectly without being genetically engineered. Um, so we're going to get into all that, Nick, and make you feel very uncomfortable. Uh, but first, I want to welcome Nick Stone. Great to have you. Matt, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And uh, it's been a great journey since partnering with yourself and the, and the RSE team and Steve. Uh, for the last couple of years, and did, by the way, I just want to show you that I illegally appropriated your trademark. There you go. See, I, 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 I brought my own brand. You know, <laughs> no, see, see, I was so, Nick, Nick was complaining that I wasn't doing enough to promote my own coffee and drinking generic coffee. So I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't like your your precious cups. So I went and made my my own mug. So yeah. slightly brand but it works right it looks good though i like the the different color inside that's right very aesthetically pleasing we thought if i was going to steal your ip i was going to do it uh with some elegance and i i think it worked out well so yeah. you can thank sarah for that uh, exactly <laughs> nick let, let's for those who don't you know those who don't know let, let's get into a little bit of of your story take us back to australia and just your your athletic career and when did you become obsessed with uh, coffee sure um well, as you sort of outlined, uh, began my career, professional career in uh, 1999 when I was in final year of high school. In year 12, I got selected in the national draft and I had a bit of a um, turbulent journeyman career. Uh, I played two seasons at three teams, so um, six seasons professionally. Uh, so I was finished at the age of 23. So were you good? You, I never asked you, were you good objectively? Like what? what? I was good enough to stay in the system six years. Right. Uh, I think what I really lacked was the self-belief that you could perform at the at the elite stage. And I think what's amazing about elite teams, and you've seen this up in personal with the Jets and the Dolphins, is you may have this very similar skill set and very similar athletic attributes, but just the ability to execute when it matters is the difference between you know a, a mediocre average player like I was professionally versus a champion. And what was incredible is that at training, like I could beat a really accomplished player easily, but then I couldn't 
uh, unfortunately put it all together professionally. Um, so luckily I studied at university the whole time. So I did a three-year bachelor degree in, in banking and finance and did it part-time over six seasons or six years. So when footy finished, I, I proceeded to go straight into uh, corporate finance investment banking. Um, I was always excited about the opportunity to work overseas and, and understand how companies grow and, and build a brand. And, well, let me pause know. on that for a second because I just did, a, I did, I did an amazing talk yesterday with, uh, or a couple of days ago with a bunch of players from, the, uh, from Jacksonville Jaguars, actually. And this is an enlightened group of players who say they want to go ahead and, and, you know, and they want to learn more and take advantage of, of, the, of the crisis to basically enrich themselves, right? But not every athlete adopts that mindset. They believe life is lived concurrently, right? They wait till their career is over before they figure what the hell I'm going to do. What made you pursue, you know, finance simultaneously? Like, was it an awareness that this that it was going to run out eventually? Or I'm curious. Yeah, I think it was a combination. Firstly, my family always were, were very realistic that if you have a great career, it's 10 years, then what, where's the utility going to come from? Forget about the money. And AFL is nowhere near paid as lucratively as an NFL or NBA. But like, what are you going to do for utility? Let's say your career finishes at 30. What are you going to do for the next 40, hopefully 50, 60 years? And I, I, that was you know, particularly um, you know, drilled into me at a very young age. My friends were reinforcing because they were all going to university and had these, these different ideas and uh, career aspirations. And I guess I really enjoyed also juggling two things at once. And if I look at everything I've achieved since since I was in 1999, I, I went to university and played football at the same time. Then I did banking and I did my master's and MBA at the same time. And then I did banking and Bluestone at the same time. And then finally jumped full-time into Bluestone uh, in mid-2016. And, uh, you know, well, so the I got married. Thing. So that so was yeah, very nice. Too, right, Dan. Hello, Dan. A little shout-out to you if you're a cheese soup, yeah. she's watching. Right? <laughs> got the most amazing wife, spectacularly beautiful, and takes care of the kids and deals with all of our madness. But so, wait, you, so you come to New York, big bad city, right? You, 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 you know, assume you're alone or you're figuring things out, right? What, when did you start yearning for your your Melbourne coffee and what makes Melbourne coffee culture so special? So I came in I came in late 2010. Alexandra had already got a job ahead of me. Um, I was trying to get transferred with my bank, but the financial crisis was making that really challenging. And at the time I was interviewing in New York and London, she decided she was studying um, osteopathic medicine, but she was modeling part time in Australia as her hobby job. And she met with a few agencies. And when I came home in 2009, they said, Nick, you're not going. There's no need for anyone who works in corporate finance or M&A over here. And then Alexandra gets a letter in the mail from Ford Agency saying, we want you to come over. We signed you for three years. Here's the visa. So I found my way and iterated again, another pivot um, to, to get to New York as part of my MBA. I wanted to do an exchange and that was going to act as the catalyst for me to land study, build up my network and hopefully find a job. And I was very fortunate that just before I transferred, uh, the bank I worked for 10 years, Australian New Zealand Banking Group, ANZ, said, actually, the Aussie banks have done pretty well during the financial crisis. We haven't had this big asset price and mortgage bubble and asset price depreciation. We've now got this huge flight to quality. They had four of the nine AA rated banks in the world. We're actually going to start growing again. And we really want to build up our institutional a franchise and Nick, we want you to have this opportunity to go and build a team in London and New York. So I went across in 2010 and was studying, and I really I focused. I did a course that focused heavily on venture capital, and it and it was a 
um, a postgraduate uh, certificate whereby you could only uh, apply and get into this program if you already had an MBA or another postgraduate degree. Degree. So my my peer group was typically aged from say 38 to 48. They were they were seasoned in many cases seasoned executives that had a lot of experience. It was absolutely wonderful and so different from what I did in my undergraduate and other postgraduate studies where you have people of very similar age, very similar experience. And this was this was on another tangent. You're talking about people who are running big, big business already, employing hundreds of people and had real pragmatic and relevant skills. Absolutely loved it. But what was so amazing was when we, we used to go for our breaks and start the morning or in the afternoon, people used to talk about going at a coffee. And I used to ask them, but but you go, which coffee shop do you go to? Where's your local? And they say, local? No, we just go get a coffee. And that is so different from the way it is in Australia. Australia is the land of independence. It's the market where Starbucks failed. Pete's isn't there. Tim Horton's not there. Costa Coffee's not there. Duncan is not there. It's a very, very sophisticated independent model. And the way in which people socialize has transitioned in some cases from the yesteryear of the pub on the corner to now coffee and and catching up and using it as a way to facilitate more deeper and and more friendly interactions and that's the way that we used to start and finish our day every day working in banking as a team we'd go to our local where the barista you wouldn't, knew you, wouldn't, wouldn't, you wouldn't go to your local starbucks that doesn't count nick that, that uh well yeah, one, there, one, there, was, there was no starbucks and every and secondly I, I, we were, we're conditioned to, to go into our local where they, na- they know your name, face and order. They make you feel recognised and special. And I saw that was really lacking. And it was part of it due to the phenomenal success of Starbucks. And as you would know, I'm such a huge admirer of what they've achieved. And I do believe they're the greatest hospitality company the world's ever known. And Schultz did it in a way that is so pioneering. But through their own success, they had commodif- commodified um, the getting coffee journey. And it wasn't really about an experience. It wasn't really about human connection. It was about fulfillment and getting someone a transaction. And I thought there must be an opportunity here, even though uh, I'd never worked a single day in hospitality. And this is my first hospitality experience and job whatsoever. Um, and so you're, uh, you're sitting with it. So you have a, you have a banker mentality. Right. So you're obviously you're in finance. So you must have done your research and know that this isn't like a quick flip if you're going to get into a, a, any kind of food fast casual. For those of you out there who don't know the business, like there's no what I one of the things I, I love about it is just how hard it is to scale the business. This isn't like creating Snapchat. Not that that's easy, but there's an opportunity for a digital product to obviously explode. And next thing you know, it's a unicorn. There are no overnight unicorns in the food business. So putting on your finance hat you knew that you were signing up for a very, very long slog if you were going to follow this passion, right? Yeah, I think I, I, I knew that it could be elongated, but I knew there was tremendous access to capital. There was a lot of M&A activity. The consumer that was driving this premium adoption was young uh, and valued it, and it was primarily squarely focused on millennials. And what I observe is Schultz, since the late 80s, had built a $110 billion market cap company a company that does $24 billion in revenue. Now, we can talk about all the tech unicorns and that they're worth a billion dollars or what have you, but not many do $20 billion in revenue in 30 years. There's some, absolutely, and, and they, dominate, um, they dominate the stock market now, the FANG, but 
very few. And I thought, isn't it amazing that they've achieved it in a sort of reasonably capital intensive way, a certainly very human capital intensive way. But when I looked at the peer group and I looked at who's a competitor, Starbucks had about a $95 billion moat. And that is just mind blowing to think that if Starbucks number one and Duncan was number two worth $6 billion, there must be opportunity here to fit in between. And, uh, and, I, and I also thought that there was a tremendous opportunity by bringing this focus on health, wellness, and this Australian sort of lifestyle mentality um, and brand that, that was going to have a really great run in the US off the back of this greater awareness around balance and health and dealing with the, the externalities of, of poor eating and obesity-related illness. And also the fact that the rise of the yeast, China and Southeast Asia, and that Australia and New Zealand are really the premium food bowl, and in many cases, the aspirational lifestyle for, for those communities. I thought that together, combined with the power of the brand of New York, we could have an opportunity to develop something to scale. So you're so you so you had this epiphany is beginning to cultivate inside of you, right? Or you begin awareness and awakening, right? And then desire is, is cultivating. But then how do you how do you overcome the it's not your industry? Like, right? I mean, most people will stop at that threshold, right? And say, I, or or they'll I find they erect barriers to their own uh, next step. They'll say, I need an expert, or I need somebody take us. I want to understand the birth of the first uh, bluestone lane. Well, it, it there's a few years between when I started to kick around the idea in late 2010 from when we opened our first store in mid-2013. And we, we talk about this quite a bit. And I, think, I do think we share alignment in this philosophy around startups and entrepreneurs that I, I'm, not, I'm not huge in glorifying failure. I, I, I don't think that you need to take unnecessary risk. And that's why in many cases I've, I've hedged my bets. So I played footy and studied. I studied in banking. And but the way I get comfortable with, with things in, in life, the way my brain works, is I love um, analyzing. I love data. I love points that really validate the way my, my gut feels. And in the case of Bluestone, I, I became a student. I became a student of the industry. I reached out to as many people as I possibly knew. I read as many books. I sat hundreds of hours in cafes. I had certainly um, heavily experienced and influenced from the type of the type of culture I was going to be you know influenced by in Melbourne and I could relate to that very directly but I became a student and and that's one of my big pieces of advice to entrepreneurs that asked me like how did you get started I said like what you start to do is you look objectively at your value proposition you look objectively at everything that could go wrong and you try and put in place some mitigants and I think over time you realize that you get a lot of comfort given the fact that if this doesn't work, then I can address it this way. If this doesn't work, I can pivot this way. And over time, I think I had more positive indicators that this could work than negative. So I started and launched with one, um, funded, you know, had had three friends who I worked with um, put in money and then I, and I put in sort of 60% of the money. And then we did two stores, and then it really started so from there. The first store is on, on uh, Greenwich. Is fifty five Greenwich your first, or is it Wall Street your first? The first one was was actually eight hundred five Third Avenue, um, subterranean basement, no street visibility, under, underneath an escalator that uh, was frequently broken. So it, you had to find it through word of mouth, and I think that laid the foundation for the brand. 
that we weren't about promotion or advertisement. We were about this alluring, almost secret sort of coffee shop that was very hard to find and was driven through word of mouth. And we were very fortunate that we had a lot of Australians that were really passionate about their premium cafe culture and that social element, that they were our ambassadors. They were the tastemakers and they brought their US friends uh, to experience it. So the first day we opened, I think we sold like nearly six, six to 800 coffees day one. And this is a 200 square foot box. Um, and, you know, then we did the one, you know, we did uh, a Broad Street uh, next to the stock exchange. And then the third one, which really took us to the next level, was certainly uh, Greenwich, 55 Greenwich Avenue, uh, what we called Collective Cafe. Uh, and we got a number of elements right there, even though we had no idea on how to run it. Um, we had certainly some very influential people walk in and really project it to the next stratosphere, I would say. And yeah. So, Nick, uh, the, you know, I believe that this, this is master of the obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway, right? That that this this COVID period is going to usher in phenomenal innovation, not for reasons that I, that people talk about a lot, telemedicine and so forth. I actually think because the the bar to execution and implementation was lowered dramatically in that you now can create a startup out of your own room. No one expects that you're going to have office space. In fact, having that space might be folly, right? And now you can get decision makers and investors to pay attention to you on a Zoom call. So you don't have to get on an airplane. And yeah. you could hire people remotely. You can have an entire remote workforce. Those are dramatic sea changes in how we operate. And so there's a bunch of people out there probably watching this or watching it down the road who are going to look to start something, right? Which is exciting. A whole new wave of entrepreneurs. So question for you is, what? give me just like one or two cringeworthy mistakes that you made in those early days so you can spare somebody else the pain that you went through, uh, you know, in that, those first six months. Yeah, I think, great question. I think I think the, one of the key things is you got to pick your partners. I think you you got to be really careful with with who you go into business with, particularly if you've come up with the idea and and you're going to give it everything you got. I think you need partners who can have the resilience and the fortitude to to get through it. I think a lot of people it, it seems like a convenient idea to partner up with a friend or someone you met, you know, and they've got a slight alignment in the same idea but if you don't get that right it causes enormous amount of headache i think the second thing that that um we would uh, you know i think back and whether we got it right or not it's you know proofs in the pudding over the next couple of years but you know i think you want to you want to be careful about going too wide i think you want to build your core foundation of your business so strong before you start um, diversifying in new products, diversifying in new geographies. Uh, I think, you know, if, in COVID has certainly brought everything to to the forefront and all your strategic decisions over the last couple of years because you're often dealing with liquidity issues and, and you know, other sort of business disruption. But, you know, I think that's a really key one as well. Like get your core base, have a solid revenue stream or, or a profit engine, a cash cow, which you can then diversify into other areas. Uh, you know, I think that's that's something that I think about Bluestone. Like, did we really need to go to that market? Did we really need to extend? Um, maybe we should have just focused more in, in where we can really be dominant. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, well, this yeah, topic, it, I want to I ask you back to your partner's point. We don't have to get into yeah. the gory detail. Yeah. But, you know, this came up at uh, 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 in the course I teach with Lunch Schlesinger at, H at HBS. How do you know when you need a partner, an equitized partner, or you need 
a seasoned employee who understands what they're doing in that space? Like, what is the litmus you go through in determining that you actually need a partner? And then what kind of partner do you need? Well, I think I think what you should do is just like before you before you get married, you go on a few dates. I think that that's how you should approach starting companies. Uh, if, if you're the founder, I think that you should get enough confidence through your own analysis and, and, and investment and education in your idea that you can feel confident leading it yourself and then bring people in to help you along the way. Don't open the kimono on the first day. Just, just spend some time together. Work through some challenges Everyone thinks it's all great when the ball's bouncing your way, when the economic conditions are fantastic or they're a great partner, but you learn the most when things are really rough, just like in a relationship. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's probably one of the biggest takeaways because if you're the founder, realistically, very few people are going to work as hard and have as much emotional investment and, and mental investment in an idea than you. And I think people get, and I, and I sort of fallen for this a few times, thinking that people are as passionate about Bluestone and the idea as me. And the reality is they're probably not. They're probably, they're passionate, but not to the level that's quite often required as a founder. And we're talking about a level of investment that is seven days a week, 24-7. And um, it's, it's, it's in many cases all consuming. I'm one of those founders that can't necessarily just switch it off. And just and I don't have a business that that enables that really in in a very easily way. But I don't know through your interviews with different people, Matt, and your experience. But I've I meet very few founders that that don't literally live and breathe it every day. That can just isolate and and compartmentalize um, the their their professional career, and then you know get on with something else, and then come to it. But well, that's, what I do, that's what I tend to do. I always just do founder-driven concepts because I think you cannot replicate that magic and intensity, right? Like you can't just pick a company on the Dow and say, you know, whatever, you know, it's got a great return. Like there's nothing like the energy of a founder who's, you know, living or dying by the success of the company. But but your point to tease it out though, that relation between partner and founder can become really uh, tense, right? Because you are devoting your life to it and you have an investor swooping in, probably like I do, like a pain in the ass every once in a while, make a random comment. You're like, I'm the one working fucking day and night, right? So it's like, you have to build it for the distance and people make that decision to your point without any kind of data. And then next thing, I would say, I think over half the concepts I see have a, have a failed partnership in it that needs, that could actually imperil the entire business. Not interesting. And usually yeah. back to the beginning days. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you've got to be really careful and, um, you know, you, you learn a lot. And I think you also need to be realistic that if you do bring some co-founders in or partners that, that they may play a role, a vital role, but then they, they may transition out. And I think being mature enough to have those conversations early on would, would help you dramatically when the time does arrive because people get disinterested or the company outgrows them or, you know, which is often a, a big challenge is, is that, you, you need to bring a more a more specialized person or someone who's more experienced on top of them, which may then require a tremendous amount of self-awareness and selflessness for that partner to step stage left or step down. But picking, picking, you know, picking growth in our case, growth equity partners and, and, and going with RSE, you know, the diligence we did on each other was 
obviously very, very extensive. I'm not going to most- tell them what I did to you, right? <laughs> Psychologist. I like to get in the head. <laughs> what's good. Take it out. Look at it. <laughs> but, you know, one of the most in- most influential things for me was a phone call I had with Michael Astoria, uh, who's the, the, the founder or co-founder and CEO of Van Pizza. And the advocacy unsolicitedly around how you've supported his business and the team and the challenges that they've had to deal with was a real inflection point in my external view on IRC. And mm. I do think that that's really, really important with picking a partner, whether it's as someone operating and going to come in the business or someone who's going to invest. Mm. And um, there's nothing better than um, having really frank, honest discussions with other founders or or other CEOs and to, to you know educate you and tell you the truth. Like, yeah, they've been great during the good times and the bad or geez, when it gets tough, these guys have really tightened the screws and and they're not particularly empathetic. And, you know, I think that was wonderful for me. And, and you know, there's no tougher time that that most small businesses are going to experience than right now. In the case of Bluestone Lane, our revenue fell 90% in a week. And the fact that we've had been able to rally and feel so um, galvanized and solidified with our with our team and our partners in in RSC and some of our other investors has been incredible because it could have gone it could have gone the other way. Over, I don't want to gloss over what you've done because I think it is really remarkable. So let's let's take it forward. You quit yeah. your job, you launch Bluestone, you scale it by the by in February. Let's let's take as a data point. February we're at fifty units, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. right? You're in New York. You're in Toronto. You're in uh, all over uh, California, right? Got a unit in Hong Kong, right? You're uh, you're everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then COVID hits, right? Yeah. So like you're you're right, and you're a cafe. You're not delivery focused, right? You're not, you know what I mean? You're you're probably like in the most vulnerable position. So how did you approach? I mean, I know because we worked on it together, but I think it's useful for everybody here because you, I think you did a phenomenal job under fire. But how did you approach those early those early days? Well, there's a couple of things that, that helped us. The fact that, and one of, I don't know if this is well known by this audience, but you've got one of the all-time great sort of like sensory fear and panic radars I've ever met. When you sense that something's really going to gonna, the, the, you know, rough the sea up, like you're onto it. And you came to me very early saying COVID is huge. We need to start preparing for it. And I think the first time you commented, I was like, I know. And Matt being yeah, those were, those were lonely days for me when I was like, it's just math. I can see the wave coming. I it's I always say it's the consolation prize of my trauma as a child that I'm very <laughs> paranoid and I'm usually pretty accurate. But uh, yeah, I shouldn't laugh. But, but it's, no, no, but you. But I will say, you know, lots of times there was nobody on the other end of the phone when I would have that conversation. You, you were, you were meeting me lockstep, right? We were very prepared because of the conversations that we had in those early days, right? Yeah, and I think you know what was what was really profound. If we, if you may remember, we met in New York on uh, March the twelfth, and uh, we had this. No, we didn't meet. We had a phone call. You couldn't come into the office. You were working at home uh, mm-hmm. because there was someone who came down with a cold in your in your team, right? And, right. Or the or the partner okay, of the in the office, office in the office. Yeah, yeah, in we the office. Right. So we had this phone call and we talked about the phases which we'd mapped out. And at that stage, we had this this good positive phone call. We agreed to implement phase one. 
Now, by that weekend, I flew back to LA on Thursday night. We implemented phase four. And then after the board meeting the next week, we implemented phase five, which was something that we, we probably never thought was possible. But the, the reality of the situation and the stress to put the business up, it demanded such decisive and, and drastic uh, action. It was um, incredibly heartbreaking and harrowing that the, the impact on, on our team, you know, and we had to make decision very, very quickly on who has an essential role um, and who is going to uh, try and keep some of our stores operational because we knew that, and, and this was quite different from some of our peers. Let's take Blue Bottle, for example. Blue Bottle announced that they were going to close all their stores for three months. Internally, we, we wanted to keep some stores open as long as it didn't compromise um, anyone's health or put any undue risk on our team or our locals for three main reasons. The first one was to preserve some jobs. Absolutely. We want to pre preserve some, some positions. The second one was we wanted to have some level of business continuity as a symbol uh, of a symbol of hope and to reinforce our purpose to be our locals' genuine daily escape. So when you hold up in your apartment in New York, getting outside for 10 minutes to get a coffee may be your only respite. It may be the only chance you get to to see other people or just to just to have some sense of freedom. And then thirdly, we wanted to contribute to the community. So by keeping the business going, keeping the roastery going, we were able to launch the Fuel for Heroes campaign and deliver 50,000 coffees across 30 hospitals, um, uh, you know, across four states, and, in which you uh, also participated in that with Sarah. Um, and that was amazing in galvanizing the team. Every member of our director or above did a coffee drop or worked in um, World Central Kitchen in, in Hudson Yards. And mm. I do think that it was such an incredible, um, a, 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 a sort of like a poetic notion that, that during crisis when our business is falling apart, like we're diving so heavily into the community because we always talked about being a pillar of the communities in which we operate. That's what a coffee shop is. It's a staple. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that so we just... Yeah. So you had 14 units that you tell everybody, because the operations are kind of fascinating, right? You go from one day of 50 units, right? You go down to 14 and then just talk through a little bit how you how you stayed open because it was... And, and that's my point about founder-driven. I don't think if I'm talking right now, just being honest, to a CEO who had nothing to do with the foundation of the company necessarily, I'm not sure they're fighting for the simple idea of we want to be able to give people a respite, which is what you told me. And you said... I just want to try to, I just want to keep as many jobs as I can, right? Yeah. So to walk through those logistics of keeping those open. And yeah, so this is, this is where um, I'm so profoundly proud of the team. Like given the resourcing that we, we stripped from, from the HQ team and from the field, we in 12 hours pivoted from regular walk-in, dining, table service in our cafes and, and walk-in and order and chat to the barista at the POS in our coffee shops to completely contactless uh, curbside pickup and delivery. Delivery where it was less than 3% of the business to now where it's like 35% of the business. We did it in 12 hours contactless. So from that point, no one was allowed in the store. You couldn't order at the POS. The only way you could order was ordering ahead on our app. And then we onboarded all these four different delivery partners in two weeks. 
And we relaunched and invigorated uh, our new loyalty program and went completely digital and mobile only. And we're seeing extraordinary results from uh, a retention and what will translate into amazing LTV. So it has been this accelerator because we talked about moving this way and we were cashless since 2016, not for any other reason other than 90% of our transactions were cashless. So we were just adopting what our, what our customers were saying, which was like, we want to use credit card or we want to pay with the ad and we want it really fast. And we don't want, you know, we don't want to slow the line up or in, impact the experience through dealing with cash. But now where we're in a, a mobile only um, uh, universe, our, our tech has stood up so well and it's been so um, innately adopted I'm very, very excited now about the future and the way that we're going to operate. And really, we're probably going to get there in three years and we just condensed it in literally three, you know, like three days. And that's been that's been incredible by the team just to rally around one voice, one decision and um, execute. And, uh, you know, we pulled it off. We, 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 we pulled it off. No, I'm proud of you. I want to, we got so many questions for you. So I want to, I want to, uh, I want to I want to hit some of them and we can weave in topics about the future. So Sam, can you see that Nick, or do you want me to just read it to you? Yeah, um, I see Sam's. There you go. All right, so perfect. How do you balance the investment behind retail, e-growth, and B two B? All the well, Sam, you can sit at our board meeting right now <laughs> in front of everybody. Yeah, we Sam, just you got go the answer, Sam. Send them forward. Um, yeah. Listen, I think this is this is a, a really interesting question, but um, we we didn't really focus heavily on e-com and CPG and wholesale relative to retail because retail, when you get it right, is such an immediate injection of revenue. To build a million dollars in retail revenue is not that hard for us off of sort of base if you get the store right and you know, half right. E-com, to build a business from zero to a million in e-com is really challenging. It's mm -hmm. not easy. People think it's um, so easy. Flip a switch. Your customer acquisition yeah. costs are upside down. It's crowded. It's you know, yep. Yeah, and then it's third party versus organic, and you know, how do you get the right amount of people to see you on Amazon? How do you deal with fulfillment? There's there's a lot of challenges. It's not. I think uh, people talk about, oh, I'm just going to be an online business. Well, that's it's not that. It might seem iterative and it might seem linear but it's not it's incredibly challenging and it's very expensive and you can you can have a lot of enthusiasm and generate ten thousand dollars in sales a week well that's half a million dollars right where a retail store opens strongly it can generate twenty thirty forty thousand dollars a week now um you know i think that's one of the challenges when you've got a retail brand that's working that constantly the pull into the core part of the business because the revenue is so much higher and maybe it's a faster way to profitability. But what COVID has taught us is the need for diversification, the need to have a relationship that is omnichannel that extends beyond our four walls. And we're very lucky that we've invested in our, in our 360 customer view that now we can aggregate um, a, a single profile on whether you engage with us in the store, um, at our coffee shops, when you, when you, eventually make reservations and, and order in our cafes and also what you buy online with us, we can we can then aggregate all transactions, all spend, put it through the loyalty program, change your tiering and really ensure that we can reward you and um, in some cases like surprise you 
through the aggregation of that data and that customer view. And uh, that's really exciting for us. And that's why we feel it's so important to continue to invest in e-com, in uh, grocery, which we're very, very um, um, early on, and, uh, and wholesale relationships. But Nick, isn't that the kind of the um, uh, the aperture that opened up as a result of COVID, which is, look at uh, Starbucks, right? Starbucks did a phenomenal job cultivating a loyalty and order ahead uh, to the envy of anybody in fast casual and the food business. Nobody did it better. Those who took advantage of this opportunity to pivot to all digital, when we emerge, it'll be a contactless world, right? Where everything will be digital and even payment transactions, will be a tremendous uh, bias. That would otherwise have taken years to probably build. And now you know, virtually overnight you have, I know others have too, it's not just us, right? But but you will emerge from the crisis, I assume now with with a deep data, with a deep database and a one-to-one customer with your customer that you didn't have, with a relationship with your customer that you didn't have before, right? And Yeah, I think th- this, it has been such a tragedy and, and it's profoundly impacted us negatively from, from an economic, Point of view but there are an incredible amount of silver linings what you've learned about your team what you learn about your customer and the way that you accelerated innovation that you can when it can't get any lower it couldn't get any worse you've got no fear anymore or you can you can be you can you, you can ab- abandon any sort of caution or hesitation you can just rapid prototype and trial and that's been so invigorating to know mm. that Hey, just give it a go. Let's just let's just trial and test and see if it works in two days. Let's just go contactless. We're going to tell everyone we're going to keep a few stores open. The only way that you can order is via the app, order ahead, and you collect from a certain position. You'll have no interaction with our team. Let's see how it works and let's try it with with a with a sample of thirteen stores, fourteen stores, and you know that that's how we pivoted. We were like, let's try it and then learn and respond. And um, yeah, you have an interesting personality profile because you have seen you have seen in otherwise others would have crumbled. Ninety percent of your business is closed down overnight. We were dealing with some serious weighty problems, uh, but you sort of uh, were invigorated by the fact that it gave a chance to experiment. You know, you dealt with the loss at first, right? But uh, but quickly bounced back, and I think that's important for anybody out there, right? Yeah, you have to seek out the silver linings. What other option do you have but other than to succumb, right? And uh, and so there should be no, there was a little shaming in the beginning for anybody talking about opportunity. And I feel really passionate about this. Like we have a responsibility and obligation to pick ourselves back up and rebuild the country. Right. And, 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 the, and the, the more we talk about that, the more we bolster each other up and say, no, there is opportunity coming out of it, the faster that will do it. Right. And I feel really strongly and you quickly embraced that experimentation phase. And as a result, I think long-term you're going to be okay. And had you not embraced that and we shut everything down, I don't know what Bluestone looks like coming out of this. You know? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And like, I'm so fortunate to have a fantastic grounding family uh, and amazing team. And I think, you know, you, we adopted, I think early on, I was, I was, I was down. I, I couldn't believe that this was happening. And we, we'd had enormous 12 months with, with ups and downs and opportunities and things, you know, dissipating. And, and we, I think we were really getting a good space with the team and we'd obviously been working on this retail leader and the hire for a long, long time and we, we finally get the right person. And But I, I immediately switched my mentality from some advice from my mum and from my wife, who Alex, who said, like, there's going to be silver linings. There's going to be something out there that you can salvage. There's going to be thing, learnings. And I think we just rallied all around it looking for the positivity, assuming good intent 
and and bringing back that optimism and that change in attitude suddenly um invigorated everybody and and i fed off their energy and i surrounded myself with people who are believers in humanity believer in the business and also i think that it was really humbling with fuel for heroes to realize though no matter what sort of challenges that you're faced with professionally or personally start you know at a stay at home order like imagine those on the front line imagine those who have lost someone never mm. had a chance to say goodbye to their grandfather or their father or a partner and and I, I just realized that we've got to keep this in perspective. Like, this is, this is, we can make, we can find a way through this. We have to be really decisive. We have to have incredibly frank discussions with those that, that we're, that are stakeholders like landlords. And we've got to find common ground and a way forward. And mm. um, adopting that approach, I think, gave us a chance to, to, and solidified our belief we're going to get through it. And, um, you know, I'm I'm in nothing but admiration for those that that really have got us through it, being um, the first responders, the delivery men, the essential workers, and obviously our healthcare heroes. Because no one's done it as tough as them, and also you know the families that have been directly impacted. And uh, you know, once once you change your mindset and realize that hey, you know, for all your issues, they're not as great as someone else. I think you start to feel more comfortable with the situation you're in and focus on attacking and what, how can I learn and get these silver linings and liberate for the future. I'll take two more questions. So we got one up right there from Ben Fenton. You want to take yeah. that? Okay. This is on the How do you balance crazy passion with business, rational decision-making, especially when you surround yourself with people? Okay. So, well, you know, I think you, you want to have a team that, is objective as is possible and everyone has different personalities traits hopefully you have common values that's essential but everyone has different strengths and different experiences i think you got to surround yourself by you know a um uh, an, an eclectic group of people that some will be your energizers some will be your uh, your, your challenges and your doubters and some that just have unbridled enthusiasm some that have a lot of experience and i think asking questions and talking and that's the way that that i like to process and and lead i love vocalizing i love um uh chatting about it openly i love throwing out crazy ideas and seeing the reaction and seeing if it stick and i think that's i'm so grateful with our relationship matt that, you know we we text or we chat and sometimes it's just, you know, completely off the wall, but it's sometimes like really exciting to go to like one extreme and then discuss the other extreme and find a way where it could actually be implemented. And, uh, you know, but ultimately like a lot of this comes down to how you as a founder um, feel about the situation. It's hard to, disintermediate that intuition if you look at the great entrepreneurs yeah they have they have data and and they have you know some other points but a lot of the time they have a vision and they have a feeling that this is the way it's meant to be conveyed this is the way it's meant to look this is the emotional response on this is how it's going to benefit our customer and i think if you look at branson and you look at steve jobs and mask these guys like they had it clear in their head and they may not have had everything worked out, but they knew and they forced the group behind them. Like, this is the direction we're pushing in. And even if you don't see it, it's naturally right now, I have the confidence and, the, and um, you know, the validation internally that, that this is the right thing for us to do. And, and I think that 
that's a critical role of the founders sometimes say, no, this is what we're doing because I know that this is the right thing. Because often, you know, through that intuition, you've got to this point now where you actually have a team and you have an investor or, or you've built, you built a customer, a customer base. So. And I think to, to add on to that, we've had this conversation too. I think it's important vis-a-vis founders, when, you, when you're entering a space that you really don't know, it's a new industry and it's the first time you're running this kind of business, sometimes you, we don't know what standard to hold ourselves to. And that we've had this conversation, right? You have to give yourself permission to not be an expert in everything, but you are going to hold yourself accountable to finding the experts and holding them accountable, right? That's the number one skill set you have to cultivate is identify talent, be able to recruit them, be able to hold them accountable, and then move on if you need to, right? And I think that always takes a little bit of time when somebody launches a company. Like You sort of feel that you have to be expert and know everything, and then you eventually settle and be like, no, it's okay. I just need to hire the best, right? Like Tom, all right, you went through this, right? You were operating all these units. We got a killer operator now in Tom. It's okay. You <laughs> you operate the unit, right? I mean, it, and it, yeah. it, takes, it takes time to sort of get there. And then the second point about the conversation of passion, you want a combination of people who are obviously, everybody's got to have some fire, but you want to, obviously you need some hard skills and practical skills. But one rule I have, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, no energy vampires, right? I just don't want anybody who, and an energy vampire in my mind is somebody who has a negative bias and is usually looking to pull somebody down rather than lift them up. Like that's the one thing I just expect of everybody. Like lift, try to lift them up at least, or at least step in the foxhole. And if there's a train coming, walk in front of it, right? Like, and so I can't stand energy vampires anywhere around me. Yeah. No, you, I think humility is such an underrated value. And like in in Australia, like we talk about this a lot. Like in Australia, like the people's champion, the the champion that doesn't grandstand or showboat is the most respected. And I think humility, empathy. Um, you know, in our game, like there's in hospitality, there's sort of no IQ, right? Everything's EQ, right? There's no intellectual property that's so advanced or so technical. It's about ensuring that your team, the people as they form the team, work well and execute and know their role and, and do it really professionally and, and support each other. And I think you're right. You, you need a you know, we talked about in a bit of a crude way that we, and it was adopted from a sporting team, uh, an AFL team that was very successful. It didn't have the best list, didn't have the the, the all the stars, but continue to find ways to win. And they had this policy they used to refer to as a, a no dickhead policy, you know, mm-hmm. and it was essentially that. Like they want good people with the right values, with the right commitment, um, with the, the positivity, the the empathy, the humility, the assumed good intent, and they wanted to be part of it as a group, and that's just so critically important. And because uh, I do think culture eats strategy for breakfast, I think that you know you can inject specialists into your business to help, but how do you ever replace like a, a unified team, a culture that? knows that they're going to prevail, that they've got that grit and persistence to get through the challenges and the self-awareness to realize that, hey, I don't know how to execute this or I don't know how to go into this line of business. I need to bring in those resources. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's for me to keep quiet and listen rather than talk. And it's a, it's a valuable it's a valuable skill. Yeah. Let's do one more question because I know you love this topic. I don't know how much of your trade secrets you want to give away, but what are some of the internal technologies you've implemented to build a data-driven hospitality stack? Um, yeah, so so we've we we started making sort of more significant tech investments um, early last year. We built a data warehouse and we started to work with 
third parties on um, putting in an engine to capture as much as we can into that sort of repository. Um, we, we've gone a slightly different approach from some brands that are of similar scale, uh, size. Some have gone out and built their own proprietary technology, which, is, uh, which has a high sort of risk return profile. Um, it, it can work and be such a huge uh, competitive sort of moat and, and barrier of entry. We decided to, to leverage third party, aggregate them together using um, technical sort of teams and then use custom UX and our own proprietary on the UX side. And we had the view, and this is me, that, that if we want to go and build something, by the time that it's done and after you look at the return on capital, there's probably a better technology off the shelf. Like the rate of adoption and iteration and development was so fast that I never felt comfortable like going out and building it ourselves. So what we invested in is knitting it all together. And we're not perfect, but what's happened is COVID has accelerated that knitting process. And um, as I talked about earlier, like that 360 view, like that's something that's really exciting. And a brand of us sort of scale in coffee that has 50 units, I don't really think anyone's got it. You know, that, that they know whether you dine in a coffee shop, in a cafe, you order a coffee online or husk gluten-free bread online that you've got a coffee subscription, we can see it all through one. And the customer, our local, can actually log on and see all the transactions, see their loyalty status, see how it's all contributed. So, you know, I think it's a balance because, you know, it, it's so easy to get enamored by just spending more and more and more on tech. And, and you know, right now you need to, but you can't do it to the point where you're going to sink the business and, and put yourself on you know, an insolvency issue. And for us, we realized it'd be better for us to spend time on knitting off the shelf sort of technologies and then investing in sort of custom UX than building it from scratch. People would be horrified to hear, to hear just how little much little money you spent. Shout out to Liam, by the way, on your team, because if he heard this and we don't mention, yeah. great job. But I think it, well, that's a great point. And I, and I had a bias in the other direction. You're the one who sort of pushed me in this direction, right? I presumed we need this massive infrastructure and have to spend all this money and you were like, no, we can patch it together and did something that as good as anybody out there, I would argue the top you know, uh, companies and created something just as good as valuable and as easy to use for a fraction of the cost, which anybody out there, don't don't allow your tech team or anybody else to convince you. You know, you have to do the research just because you don't know how to do coding yourself doesn't mean you can't figure it out. But Nick, I want to I want to end with, on this topic. So you we have 20 units in New York, roughly, right? Yeah, You're 23. In 23. 23. Yep. The hardest hit city on earth, right? It's basically where the core of your entire business is. You know, what does brunch look like in July in New York, in New York City, from where you sit? <laughs> you know? Well, I, I I'm I'm excited by the fact that there will be brunch in July, <laughs> that people will be able to to dine in. That's gonna be a tremendous achievement. And I think something that should be celebrated. Um, it will be outside, I think only. Um, which is great, the climate and season supportive of it. And um, it will be on a, it'll be on a more uh, capacity constrained basis. So we will require reservations in advance and um, you will order your brunch from your phone. You will be greeted by a concierge who checks you in, uh, undertakes the required health um, protocols and, and checks, which may include temperature, Certainly, we're adopting full contact tracing. 
um, to, to know who comes in and who comes out for our own um, health and welfare of, of the, our team and also those who are also, you know, dining, dining with us. And um, you will then order from your phone all the transaction we process from your phone. And, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be more intimate who you're dining with because you'll certainly have more space. And, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be a, uh, hopefully a, a, a great experience, you know. Um, it's going to be all technology enabled. There won't be table service. There, there won't be a lot of human connection with the, with the exception of the concierge service that's going to welcome you and seat you. And, and um, I think it's a new world, but people, I believe, are going to be really excited about the ability to dine outside. And um, we're very fortunate that we have some iconic locations, um, two in DC that, that are, have extraordinarily large outdoor dining areas. We've got obviously Upper East Side on the on Fifth Avenue and 90th opposite the park. We have one of the best spots in West Village. So I'm pretty excited because so much of the Bluestone business was, was centered around alfresco dining, dining outside with friends. And um, you know we're in a position to be able to provide that and um, it'll actually start commencing shortly. DC has brought forward their opening um, to tomorrow. So you can actually uh, serve people uh, outside for, 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 dine, for dine in, but uh, on an out, um, outside the premises, which is really exciting. So we'll be looking to activate within the next sort of seven to 10 days. Uh, we'll, we'll sit and wait for a week and see how some of the others um, execute and, and sort of learn and then you know, quickly follow. And that's going to be exciting, and I think everyone's going to be probably hanging in for those moments, and and uh, you know our team will be be ready. Yeah. Well, first of all, well, I for one cannot wait to be back there. That's my that's my weekend tradition. I can't wait to get a rainbow ball or in bad days get the the egg wrap that you have, but uh, depending on my my mood. But um, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of the team, and I'm so excited that we're going to be back at it. The amazing thing is, I'm sitting here listening to what you went through and what the company's gone through. I can't imagine anything worse. So I assume. <laughs> Like it only gets better. We've been yeah. dead and we're still here doing a LinkedIn yeah. you know, live and you're still smiling. So, uh, yeah, kudos you, to, you know, everyone get your blue stone out there. It's a, I think the best coffee completely biased, but it, it is phenomenal. And it's, uh, a, it's a good, it's a good product from someone that did not come from coffee background. Like, and I'm, as you know, what I'm like, I'm brutally candid at times it is, you know, we really did put the authentic flat white on the map and and really the avocado smash right we introduced it in new york and it's fantastic that it's a staple on on sort of every brunch menu now but uh if you haven't tried it um give it a go and uh you're better thing, to try avocado if you're the one person in the world who hasn't had an avocado <laughs> but what one one closing comment is certainly around um supporting small business whether it's bluestone or, or other small businesses they're they're the most disproportionately hit those who have had very limited access to capital, often owned by you know, a family member who's put in a tremendous um, blood, sweat and tears and financial resourcing. And so if, if people are out there and, and they're thinking about you know, rallying behind restaurants, rallying behind um, small consumer product brands, like I, I implored you to, and implore you to really think about shopping small because they're the ones that are going to need it and they're going to need the revenue immediately once they open. Otherwise, there's a real risk that they could fail in the first couple of months. And we don't want that. They're, they're the cosmopolitan fabric of all these amazing cities and, and no more sort of pertinent than New York City, the, the truly the world city and, and arguably the culinary capital of the world. So 
uh, get out there and support and shop local. I'm going to leave on that, Nick. Incredibly well said. I'll see you soon. Thank you, everybody. Great session. I'll talk to you soon, Nick. Thanks, right. Chuck. Take care. Bye.